You are listening to Hear Her Sports, a podcast for active, adventurous women who love hearing stories from other active, adventurous women. I am your host, Elizabeth Emery. In every episode, I introduce a female athlete or woman in sport through a conversation about who they are and the terrific work they're doing. This week, I am talking to Kelsey Irvick, an author who wrote and illustrated a beautiful graphic memoir about growing up as a sporty girl during the early days of Title IX. I so related to her story, her interest in the history of women's sports, and her mission, I'll call it that, to tell stories of the great and ordinary women we don't know enough about. I absolutely love the book. It's called The Keeper. It's coming out in early October 2022, so order it now. It is available through the Hear Her Sports bookshop page. Go to hearhersports.com bookshop. If you were a girl kid in the 70s, this is definitely a book for you. I also really do love graphic novels, and Kelsey uses the medium to perfection with images, text, collage, so many ideas all at once, which is how I feel when I think back on being a sporty girl then. Before I get to the episode, I want to thank The Feed for their ongoing support. For four months, The Feed is sponsoring the Keeper Forward Female Athlete Podcast Network. The network includes Hear Her Sports, Keeping Track, and Women's Running Stories. The Feed is the largest online marketplace for your sports nutrition, offering the brands you know and love from Scratch Labs, Cliff Bar to Morton, plus their athlete-customized supplements called Feed Formulas. They carry over 250 brands, so you have thousands of products to choose from and to try. Personally, I really love shopping at The Feed because I'm thoughtful about fueling my body for training and competing, and not everything I use is made by the same manufacturer. The Feed is a large one-stop shop, so in one shipment, I can get exactly the bars, electrolyte powders, protein powders, and gummy blocks I like. The Feed has been a great partner and has an offer for you, too. As dedicated listeners of Hear Her Sports, you can get $80 in credit at The Feed. Go to thefeed.com hearher to claim your $80 in credit at The Feed. All of that information and the link is also in the show notes. Now I'll introduce Kelsey, and in the episode, keep your ear open for the Dick Kerr ladies. It's a great, great story. Kelsey Irvick was a goalkeeper for nationally ranked soccer teams as a girl and a D1 player in college. These days, she is an author, artist, mother, and professor of creative writing at Indiana University in South Bend. Kelsey has written three award-winning books of fiction and nonfiction, The Bitter Life of Bozena Nemkova, Lillianne's Balcony, and For Sale by Owner. She is co-editor with Tom Hart of the Field Guide to Graphic Literature, forthcoming from Rose Metal Press in 2023. Her short stories, essays, and comics have appeared in The Rumpus, The Believer, Lit Hub, Colorado Review, Passages North, Quarterly West, Booth, Notre Dame Review, and elsewhere. She has received grants from the Indiana Arts Commission, the Sustainable Arts Foundation, and the New Frontiers in Arts and Humanities at Indiana University. She has a PhD from the University of Cincinnati. Kelsey's new book, due out in October 2022, is a graphic memoir called The Keeper. It is about her time as a soccer goalie, along with so much more surrounding that, including Title IX, women's sports history, friendship, growing up, and art. Well, hello, Kelsey. It's super exciting to have you here. I'm a huge fan of graphic novels, and The Keeper is just beautiful. So, yay. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, you know, I have to admit that I'm a bit nervous about this interview because (laughs) I feel so close to the story 
in the keeper, you know, we're roughly the same age. I'm a little older than you. And I'm worried that all I'm going to want to do is just chat with somebody who's like-minded. <laughs> <laughs> I would welcome that. <laughs> I, I thought a lot about why I feel that way, but I think it's because, you know, there haven't been that many books about women our age, you know, sort of talking about what it was like to be a sporty person at, at, at that time. Yes, I I feel like so many biographies and memoirs that are about athletes are about professional ones and I'm just like a regular old athlete and and I and I wanted to tell that story, you know, growing up being so immersed in sports but I didn't go on to be like a superstar. I had some brushes with future soccer fame, but just to be a part of growing up in those early years of Title IX and kind of through some of its evolution was just kind of exciting to me. And it's such an interesting time, you know, a, a transitional time. And, you know, like my mother certainly didn't play any organized sports, but, you know, my grandmother was super sporty and my mother did lots of skiing. And so we were mm. the first generation who did have the opportunity to have organized sports in school and whatnot. Yeah, that was something that I was only vaguely aware of as as a girl growing up. I I understood that I was doing something that my mom's generation had not had a chance to do, but you know, you're young and you don't really know what that means or why. And so that was part of the project of this book too, was to to historicize it a bit, to look at like, well, why didn't mom have those opportunities? And why was I able to have some, um, well, actually many, but, you know, but it was still the early days. And so and that was kind of notable. And and I think it started to really hit home for me when I was coaching my daughter, you know, in the next generation and coaching with another mom who like clearly knew how to play soccer. And I was like, okay, this is like a, uh, you know, a, a new kind of soccer mom. And, uh, and she and I got to talking, you know, we were both coaching my daughter's junior high team and figured out we had not only both played all through college, played soccer through college, but we played against each other when we were in college. And I thought, my gosh, these like 12 year old girls getting coached by two former college soccer players who happened to be their moms just was really striking. So I felt like that generational evolution was really notable. And that kind of that was that sparked an early essay um, that I that I wrote just reflecting on the different generations of what it meant to be a soccer mom in the 80s versus the 90s versus the 2000s. Um, and ultimately, you know, it was kind of like the seed for this book, I think. Yeah, I was going to ask you sort of what was the evolution of of deciding to write this book? Yeah, that was a that was a definite moment for me. Um, being aware now as a mom and just looking back from this distance and seeing the ways things had changed. And, um, and, and that was right. That was a little bit before the 40th anniversary of title nine. And, and so I think I just started like not only noting the differences, but making those connections like, Oh, and of course this is because of title nine. So, you know, then just doing more of the research to find out because, you know, title nine, it's like you, uh, you know about it, but how much do you know about it? And not everybody knows about it. And I was excited to do some research and learn more about how and why it got written. And that, of course, I, I 
talk about in the book. I, I just, you know, in, in a few pages, try to tell the story because I felt like really inspired by these women and their stories. Bernice Sandler, Patsy Mink, um, Birch Bay was inspired by his wife who had been turned down from the University of Virginia because she was a woman. So these people that made Title IX happen, I got excited learning that story. And um, and I just I just liked the idea of looking at my own story, but looking at like all of the history that surrounded it and how how all of those forces shaped my life in ways that I had no idea. Sure. Um, and I think, you know, growing up, I, I thought I was an athlete because my dad had been an athlete and because they put me into sports and, you know, but but the fact that there were sports to be put into had so much to do with Title IX. And um, yeah, so just exploring the ways in which this this law had shaped my entire life without me knowing it was, was exciting. I was on some panels for Title IX and did research. And one of the things I found out is how few people actually know about Title IX. I mean, even, yes, you know, of all ages, I mean, the, the, the percentage of people who know about Title IX is just absolutely shocking. And I think about it like, you know, it's not taught in school, really. And, no. and so it's so important to be talking about it and what it's done mm-hmm. and, and what we've gotten. And also the interesting bits about how, and you mentioned this in the book, that it wasn't really, a, you know, it wasn't sports minded when it started. Right, right. Yeah, it was it was created by these women who had been turned away from higher educational institutions on the basis of sex, you know, and um, and Bernice Sandler collected all of these examples, thousands of pages of examples of women getting passed over for jobs, not getting accepted into programs, uh, not getting paid as much as men, you know, all of this. And so it was it was designed to limit discrimination in higher educational institutions and all educational, federally funded educational institutions. And it was the line that any educational activity, like the the word activity led us into the sports arena where it's like, okay, well, are sports an activity? Yes, they are. And so that was part of the language that opened it up to exploring gender equity in sports and all of these meetings about, you know, how are we going to enforce this? And does it have to be in sports? And yes, it does. I'm glad you mentioned enforcement, because that was one of the things that I discovered in my research, is that the enforcement is not done. And so compliance is really terrible. You know, looking back now that you've done all this research and thinking about your own experiences benefiting from Title IX, you know, what are your thoughts about Title IX and, and what it still needs, I guess? And like, What do we need to do to continue progress? Yeah. Um, Well, yes, the enforcement is a big one. USA Today came out with a big study showing how like 83% of universities are still not fully in compliance. And so we do need to continue to, to work toward this to keep getting people aware of Title IX. I mean, that's part of it is awareness. changing attitudes about it. And I think, you know, then also just we have our larger structural issues where, you know, people have noted that the main beneficiaries of Title IX are white women. And so we need to also be thinking about, you know, these larger social issues and continue to work to make sports accessible to all people at all schools and all communities. Yeah, I mean, once again, sports is a good indication of what is going on outside of sports. Yes. Yes. I want to go 
back to your youth. And one of the things that you said in the book that struck me was that you had a boy's life. Hmm. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I, I felt like growing up playing sports all of the time. Um, I was I was always tall, strong, fast. And I just, you know, kind of roamed around. I was a total tomboy, quote unquote, as we called it in the 70s. And I, I loved sports. I loved watching the Olympics. I loved watching the Pittsburgh Steelers. I wanted to be Lynn Swan, the wide receiver of the Pittsburgh Steelers. I just wanted to be out throwing and catching and kicking and running and playing. And, you know, at the time that was that that felt gendered to a boy's life. And I think I just so I don't know, I, I, I think I just identified quite a bit with boys. I was the oldest and my parents were pretty young and my dad had been an athlete. And so I just, you know, that was kind of he got me out doing all of these sports. And um, so I think that sporty life just felt more like a boy's life at the time. And um, and, and you remember thinking that? Um, I remember identifying a lot with boys, I guess. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I did too. Yeah. Which is sad. You know, like, why does that activity have to be boy? Yes, 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 exactly. I, I, I don't, I don't think it is so much anymore, but certainly in the 70s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You also said that being on the sports field was a place where, you know, you didn't have to be good and quiet and nice. And again, sort of a similar question, is that in retrospect that you remember that? Or did you remember that at the time? Like, oh, I'm on the field, I can be all this other stuff. Mm. Um, I don't know if I was as um, articulate or conscious about it at the time, but but I do think there was a sense of in regular life, you know, you're told to, or I was told sort of, you know, like to, to be quiet, to be well-mannered, to be respectful, et cetera. And just when, when you're getting ready to go out onto the field or a court, um, I played basketball, softball, soccer, ran track, all of these things, you're, you get very different instructions and you're told to, to be tough and you're told to, you know, be strong and you're just supposed to go out there and, and, and win. And it's, I don't know. So you just get very different messages when you're in regular life as a girl versus when you're about to head out onto the field. And sadly, I think that's still true. Yeah. 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 The other thing I wanted to ask you about is you have those cards that you're supposed to check off things that you want to be when you grow up. <laughs> were those real cards? Like you were really feeling like telling more about that? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, this was a, a, in this book called School Days and um, they there were they weren't cards. They're they're in boxes, but they're just on the pages inside of this book. And um, that was the list of um, things, the choices that you had. It was it was so it says you know what I want to be when I grow up, and then there's a side for boys, and there's a side for girls, and there are just different options. And you know again, 
1970s. Um, but it was, um, you know, the boys could be an astronaut, a football player, a baseball player, a hockey player, a chef, etc. I mean, so there's 10 for each. And then so that's, that's a sampling. And then yeah, for girls, mother, nurse, teacher, actress, singer. <laughs> so yeah, and every year it was like, oh, I would, I would check off what I wanted to be that year. And it was interesting how that evolved from first grade when I was checking, you know, all over the boys' side. It was like, I want to be a baseball player. I want to be a football player. Um, I want to be a policeman. Um, and then I, and I would also put something on the girls' side. But by third grade, I was only filling in, uh, checking off items on the girls' side. And as I say, by sixth grade, when I was a five foot eight, 12 year old, the only thing I wanted to be, the only thing I checked was model. <laughs> And so to me, this just, you know, it's fascinating to me that I still like have this book and can map it out and just see the way that I was clearly socialized, you know, I mean, that was like, I mean, part of it's like getting older, but it's like, early on, it sort of is okay to be, you know, on the boys side and want to do all these things. And then I started limiting, you know, realizing, okay, I'm a girl, I have to check off things on the girls side. And then by the end, I just have it be a model, like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you write about that sort of cultural aspect of being girls and boys, not only in this book, but apparently in your other books. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what to ask. I just, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the reason I don't know what to ask is because, you know, I see the changes happening and you talk about that in your book. You know, your book sort of progresses to the U.S. women's soccer team now and everything that they've done, the uniformity that they had in fighting for equity. And it all seems great when you take these little things, these little pieces. Mm -hmm. But then you think about sort of the cultural attitudes, and then I get depressed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. And um, I mean, Caitlin Murray writes about this in her book about the national team, just thinking like, so the 1990s, it's like, finally, like women's soccer is coming into its own. We have huge success at the 1996 Olympics. We have huge success at the 1999 World Cup. But, you know, the the media coverage of the women's team and of their games constantly focuses on their sex appeal, like that term in numerous headlines, you know, talks about the team looking good and, you know, all this focus on their looks more than even their amazing World Cup winning play. And when Brandy Chastain yanks her shirt off at the end of her, you know, when she has the winning penalty kick in the 1999 World Cup, you know, the response included outrage and just high drama because here's a woman yanking off her shirt and we can see her bra. So yeah, thinking of the ways in which we're just obsessed with women's bodies and clothes when they're out performing amazingly on the soccer field is just kind of depressing and, you know, and, and continues, it, it's evolved in different ways, but continues today. Well, you know, I mean, Evolved, maybe, but I mean, it's still very much the same. I mean, we're, we were all so outraged. I mean, not we, me, <laughs> or yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> outraged at uh, the bra viewing. But meanwhile, in 2021, the Norwegian handball team was, you know, fine for not wearing yes. their bikini bottoms. Yes, yes. 
I know. I mean, and the I guess the cool thing is that didn't that result in a change in yes. the yeah. I mean, so so a little a little step of progress, but yes, fine for not wearing bikini bottoms. Like what? <laughs> <laughs> well, it does make you question. You know, like who are they thinking is the viewership? Right. Right. And I have that quote from 2004 where Sepp Blatter, the head of FIFA at the time, was like, oh, can't we get women's, um, you know, football, soccer players, can't we get them to wear, you know, tighter shorts like they do in volleyball? And he's like, they look really good, you know, what can I say? And it's like, <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, this is one thing that I've learned over the course of doing here for sports is that, you know, like all of these tactics are the same. I mean, we could find, well, we can find, and I want to talk about the Dick Kerr ladies, Mm -hmm. that the tactics used against them were the same that we're seeing now. Yes. You know, the tactics that are used to keep people down are the same regardless of groups, regardless of time. And I think it's, I mean, for me, seeing that these are tactics and that they've been used over and over again is helpful for me, you know, because I can sort of put it in that box and like, oh, it's not personal or something. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree to to see them in a sort of objective way like that. And and for me, likewise, to see it historically, and to go, oh, this, this has been happening for over 100 years. I mean, it's not in incur- I mean, I don't know, it's a little depressing, but to, to know that, that from the beginning that we're just continuing this long this long fight. Yeah, and that was one of those kind of exciting things in in researching the book because I did not know about the Dick Kerr ladies and um and I was stunned to find that they existed and were as popular as they were. Um and why don't we know about Dick Kerr ladies? I didn't know about them either. I mean, we should all know about them. <laughs> I know. I know. And I mean, these stories are just starting to be told and and I think it Right now, especially in England, there's a lot of excitement. Um, yes, you know, as they're looking, at, you know, I mean, they're in their own exciting moment right now. But um, it, it's all the more important in light of this history. And so maybe it's a good time to talk a little bit about who the Dick Kerr ladies were. <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of like our a league of their own story in a way where women stepped in to play a sport while men were away at war, except this is England in World War One. So in the 19 teens, these women who were working in a munitions factory, so a factory had been transformed into making munitions, and they started playing football, soccer, at uh, their lunch breaks. And it was happening in a lot of different factories. And so these munitionettes, these women munitions workers, began playing against each other in ultimately a charity league, raising money for um, wounded soldiers or orphaned children, um, orphaned because of the war. They were just super popular. I mean, it's it's astounding to me, you know, knowing how we're like fighting for to, to get you know, in the multiple thousands of people into like NWSL games, that they had 10,000 people attend their first match and were just extremely popular for the next five years. And then in 1921, they were so popular, they played before more than a half a million people over the course of the year. And in December 1921, the English Football Association decided that the sport was, quote, unsuitable for females 
and they banned women from using any of their facilities or and participating in the association. And so, um, so that's in late 1921. And, you know, here we are in 2022. And, and the, the British women's team wins the Euro Cup very dramatically. So we've got this like kind of amazing century in between the ban lasted for 50 years, and uh, was only lifted in the early 1970s, right around when Title IX was passed. So, you know, there are some historians there beginning to uncover and tell these stories of the Dick Kerr ladies, you know, and I hope that we start talking about them over here, too, because they're the, you know, they really led the way. Imagine being one of those women and being told you couldn't play anymore. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. What a bummer. I mean, the cool thing was that they found ways to continue playing outside of football association facilities, but it really did major damage to the sport for women. I mean, they, they had to go find other venues to play the Dick Kerr ladies. And I don't think I mentioned this before, but they're named for the munitions factory where they worked the Dick Kerr, um, munitions plant. Cause it's kind of a strange name. Um, they came to the United States in 1922 because they could no longer play in um, in FA facilities in England. They came here to have some matches and didn't know until they got here that they would be playing against men's teams in the U.S. because we did not have any women's teams. <laughs> and so they played nine games and went three, three, and three. And they and they did continue to to play. But again, just in this limited and restricted way, and ultimately all the leagues, um, all the teams kind of fizzled out by the 50s and 60s. But again, it's exciting to to see people telling their stories now and um, including a friend of mine I've met on Twitter, Steve Bolton, whose grandmother played for the Dick Kerr ladies. And he vaguely knew that his granny had played football, but he didn't understand the scope of it until after she had died, he discovered an old trunk with all of her memorabilia. And he's turned it into the Lizzie Ashcroft collection. And he's been collecting newspaper articles and and really like learning the whole history and sharing and disseminating it. And so it's cool to see these personal connections and he's been a wonderful resource and supporter of my book so it's a cool community and it's great the stories are starting to get out there that story also struck me as sort of you know like we have this myth that no one wants to watch women's sports which turns out to be yet another fabrication yes (laughs) (laughs) yes i mean yeah and and it keeps being proved wrong recently with um, Serena Williams, with the Euro Cup, you know, I mean, it's just, yeah, it's not that people don't want to watch women's sports. Um, It's just, it's just what we've, what we've done in our culture is just constantly watch men's sports. And they are, um, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm excited to think that sports fans in general might start to tune into women's sports more. I think we've got a new generation of women who grew up in sports who are going to be excited to be fans. I feel like that's my experience growing up playing soccer is exactly why I'm interested in the women's national team and and the NWSL 
right now is it's 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 familiar to me it's um i don't know it, it i i almost felt i got away from from it for a while i wasn't really tuned in and then it just felt it just was like felt like home to me to to start like tuning into games and and watching them and it just um so i think there's just going to be a whole new generation of of women who are excited about this and it's changing as we speak so it's exciting right right what is your relationship now to being an athlete, you know, having been an athlete, and you talked a little bit about this in the book. Yeah, I, I always, I, I think I just keep my athlete self with me, even though the fact is I've not played, you know, competitively in, I guess, about 30, almost 30 years. And I, I find that kind of wild. I mean, so after an intense childhood and young adulthood uh, through college, playing competitively, traveling, having my entire life really revolve around sports, mostly soccer, but also basketball and softball and track for a while. And, um, and then it was just over. And then I became a mom and then I became a soccer mom, you know, so I would, I coached my daughter's team from the time she was in kindergarten up through junior high and then she ultimately played volleyball instead of soccer in high school so in a way I kept in touch with it that way but I I think it's just like always in me I mean I I still I like to run and work out and I and I I need to be physical you know I like to to feel good I guess I don't know and and I think the mentality of being an athlete has really helped me navigate my life as a um, teacher, as a professor, getting my PhD. I mean, it just kind of, I don't know, it's who I am. So I always carry it with me, even though I'm not like actively playing any competitive sports. I love that you are here listening to another terrific sporty woman tell her story. If you aren't already on the list, I encourage you to sign up for the Hear Her Sports newsletter at hearhersports.com. Many listeners are already signed up and really enjoy reading and finding even more by clicking the links. You will find special offers from sponsors, of course, with the links that take you exactly where you want to go. Mostly, the newsletter is where I write some thoughts on the latest guest and what we talked about in the episode. All the conversations stay with me, so in the newsletter, I'm able to relate those thoughts to a bigger picture of women's sports and to everything I've learned from the more than 100 women I've spoken to in the last five years, producing the podcast and other audio projects. Each individual story is important. Equally important is where the stories fit into the context and history of female athletes and women's sports. I'd love to have you join us. It comes out only every other week, so enough to be engaging, but not too much. Sign up at hearhersports.com. In the book, you said something like you distanced yourself from sports past, your sporty mm-hmm. past, I guess. Was that, mm-hmm. <laughs> was that a conscious thing or, you know, like what, what was that about? Yeah, it was a little bit of a, a little bit of a conscious thing and a little bit of like, well, I mean, <laughs> it's it's over. I mean, I, I I didn't have any 
anywhere else to play competitively. So, but I think I was, I, I, I did feel a little bit of a sense of like, well, I've got these other interests specifically in like being a writer or artist, academic. And it felt like a time that I could pursue that without having, because, you know, I used to like, I, I would want to take like a painting class in college, but it would be a three hour studio at the same time that, you know, I had soccer practice in the afternoon, so I couldn't take it. So it was just, you know, I, I never like was allowed to pursue these, not allowed to, but I mean, you know, it never really fit into my sports schedule in life. And so I started exploring and pursuing some of these other interests, taking classes and writing and drawing and doing all these, these things. And I really was not paying much attention anymore to sports, I guess, I, um, or to women's sports. And yet it was, I mean, I was coaching my daughter, but then, but then, like I said, I mean, after more than a decade as I was coaching her, I don't know, I just started to feel like drawn back toward it in a weird way. You know, I, I think of it the way maybe some people like, you know, you grow up in church and you get away from it and you feel this like, like pull toward, I don't know, the sensory, I, like every, like it, it just, it just felt like so comfortable to me. And I loved going to games locally, I, you know, watching the Notre Dame women's soccer team play. Um, I would just go and just, just sit and watch. And it was very Zen-like for me. I don't even know how to describe it, but. One of the things that you talk about in the book is sort of how sports and arts don't get together. I mean, this is sort of an aside, but I think a lot yeah. of that is what you mentioned before is that the time commitment for each is is very big. Yeah. And it's hard to do both. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's hard to do both. And um, yeah, I don't know, but it, it just also felt notable to me like being in college and being an English major and none of the other English majors was interested in sports and none of my teammates were interested in English major stuff, you know, um, it just felt like kind of different worlds, you know, in addition to the, to the time constraints on different things. Right. But I think that's why I also got excited, like, you know, talking about Vladimir Nabokov and his memoir, Speak Memory, where he, writes so lovingly about having been a goalkeeper and you know and he's just like i mean just i mean just one of my favorite writers and um and he was also a visual artist and he just had it you know he was able i don't know he embodies like that whole like artistic and athletic element that i find so compelling that's one thing i really love about your book, The Keeper, is that how you've brought in all this other stuff. I mean, certainly it's your story, you know, from start to finish, but it's also talking about literature and history and, you know, Dick Kerr ladies, all of that stuff. It's really, it's really fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I, I mean, my, my story, I feel like is almost, is only interesting with all of these other stories swimming around it in a way. I mean, I feel like that's what makes my trajectory of being a, a girl athlete in those early years, you know, playing only on boys teams. I mean, that it's such a familiar, um, it's a familiar story for many of us of, of a certain generation, but to think about it as a bigger story and, and why, why that is. And, and yeah, to think about like, well, there's, 
Camus and Nabokov, and they were writers who were goalkeepers, but they were also guys. And so like, how, how is it different when, you know, when you're a young girl coming up and interested in being a writer and being a goalkeeper? <laughs> so yeah. And I think as I, as I talk about in the book, maybe the, the really big thing for me was to see the ways in which women artists and women athletes have faced the exact same challenges over you know, centuries. Um, And to really see like, oh, even in these kind of disparate worlds, what is shared is this fight for equality. Well, it goes back to my, they're the same tactics being used over and over again. Yes, yes, exactly. And speaking of that, I mean, one of the things that you mentioned in the book is this discovery that you had in school of all these female writers, which you hadn't known earlier in your life, and sort of the importance of, I mean, calling them role models seems not quite right. But, Hmm. you know, we live in a society where everything we look to is male. And I certainly think about that in terms of, you know, like, how we all watch male sports, and not women's sports. And sort of, you know, we've talked about a little bit about that. So talk about these women writers that became I don't know what inspirational motivational mm-hmm. what, what was it mm-hmm. yeah um all of those things and and i just felt this like deep connection i was like oh like their stories just really resonated with me in a, in a different way than you know the, the stories by male writers did and and plenty of stories by male writers resonate with me that's why i was getting a phd in english literature but yeah i think what was what was so important for me in in that moment was the way that I came I came into grad school you know just as like steeped in these patriarchal ideas as anyone else I was privileging literature by men and and in a strange way I realized that that had come from my sports days because you know one of the things that I I realized in retrospect that I loved about being an athlete was, and this kind of goes back to that boy's life question. One of the things I loved about being an athlete was feeling like I was participating in, in something important and, you know, something that was valued in society because we value sports and we value men being strong and being active. So I, I felt like I was as I, I, I don't know. I just realized that like, that was part of what I liked about being an athlete was that I felt like I was participating in like the, the man, a man's world, I guess. Mm. And I, I did, I wanted to take that attitude that, that the, I don't know, those kinds of ideas into my own writing. I, you know, I, I say in the book, I, I, I didn't even know what it really meant, but I, I wanted to write like a man, you know, I felt like this impulse, um, and then I'm reading these books by all of these women and I'm like, oh, like, I don't know. They just resonated with me so deeply the way that they addressed things that I was experiencing as a as a mother. I had a, a young daughter. My daughter was young when I was in grad school. And so, you know, the way that they spoke about motherhood was um, not the way that male writers spoke about motherhood. There was a value to it. There was a value to domesticity and to to life at home, where, you know, I could sometimes feel limited. But instead, there there was just this. They they just shone a light and and a different way of seeing my life as a woman. And and it was 
very inspiring to me. I recently was talking to somebody about, you know, now that I'm aware of, I don't know, the, the lack of coverage of women's sports and things like that, it sort of feels like I've I forget which one it is, but the red pill, blue pill analogy of, you know, now that I've seen it, I can't help seeing, you know, the impact of patriarchy. Mm. Do you have that same impression? Yes. Yeah. I, and I, and again, I think I was um, surprised. I mean, you know, I, I was writing about like, I'm reading Virginia Woolf and, and she's writing about, the problems of the patriarchy in the 1920s. And I'm like, yeah, you know, and I, and like, but I wasn't seeing the ways in which I was steeped in it for myself. And, and, and so I think just having the blinders come off my own eyes about myself, um, you know, I, I was, I, I could see it elsewhere in certain ways, but I wasn't seeing it for myself. So, yeah. Yeah. It was a big moment for me when I was able to say, I'm a sexist. Yes. <laughs> and yes. I shocked everybody. Like it really, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You wrote somewhere, and now I can't remember if this was in your book or someplace else. You wrote, writing books about women whose existence had been forgotten was super important for you. Mm-hmm. Do you have a mission in your writing? I mean, do you think about it in that way? It has come to feel like one. <laughs> you know, it, well, I don't, I, I didn't start off thinking that that was my mission, but it has more and more become what I do and what I'm interested in, you know, whether in in my books, like I have a novella set at Frank Lloyd Wright's Falling Water, the house south of Pennsylvania that looks like it's sitting and basically is sitting right over a waterfall. And all of the research I did about that house was about Frank Lloyd Wright and the, you know, the husband, the man who commissioned the house, but he commissioned it, he and his wife did it together. And you could just barely learn anything about her. And yet she was a business partner with her husband. And she was as much a part of all of the activities as he was. So I wanted to tell her story, you know, I just got interested in like that sort of alternate perspective. And then my next book was about a fairy tale writer from uh, what's now the Czech Republic and Bohemia is, you know, what, what it was then. And, um, and just very few people know about her. We know about Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm, but in the U.S., few people knew about her. And I just got excited to tell her story. So, yeah, and, and then learning about these, you know, early, quote, lady footballers for this book was very exciting to me. And the the women who made Title IX happen. I, I, I find I find these stories very inspiring in part because they're not, most of them are not well known and they're just women doing like amazing things. And, and, and I, and I just want to tell their stories. I think it, it inspires the rest of us. You know, I talked earlier about like my, my um, memoir, you know, like, I'm like a sports girl who never went on to be a famous athlete. And, you know, so it's kind of like the sports memoir for the rest of us. And I think of that with these women, too, that so many of them, uh, you know, are just women living their lives. And when when you just see someone who's not like a super famous person, but doing these amazing things, I think it's very inspiring. Why is history? I mean, we might have gotten to this already, but why is history and why are stories important? I mean, what's your aim telling them? 
Um, oh man, <laughs> that is such a good question. I, I mean, cause I feel like it's, it's the claim I make all the time that these, like that, that like these stories, like this is, this is why I write. Um, so it's almost like the biggest question you could possibly ask me. <laughs> um, I, I find that these stories as I learn them, they, they inspire me to do more and be better and, and be stronger. And, and I, and I'm just constantly like, why, why don't we know them? Maybe a better way to put this, we're going to tell stories and, and we do tell stories and the stories that we tell are rarely about these amazing women, kind of everyday women doing cool things. They're often about important men. They are often just about men in general. And, and, you know, we talked about sports media coverage, like it's, it's all about men. And there is just, there are just so many stories to be told about women, artists, writers, athletes. We are here, we are doing all of these things. And I want these stories out there in circulation. I, I want them to be right up there with, you know, with with all of the football stories. I'm talking NFL football. I, I want them up there with all the baseball stories. I, I want us to be talking about women's accomplishments and talking about them as accomplishments and not about their outfits. I want us to honor the the women who have fought for us to be where we are. And I want those stories told. I'm so glad I asked you that question because since I started to hear her sports, I've often said that I am a better person having heard all these stories. Ah, uh, yes. And I totally feel that way. I'm so, you know, like when I have bad moments, I'm motivated by them. I'm inspired by them. And I agree with everything you said. You know, I want everyone to hear these stories. Yes. And that's such an excellent parallel. I mean, you're working on it through this podcast and telling these cool stories. I love listening to the stories of, of women I've never heard of doing sports. I didn't even think I was going to be interested in. And suddenly I'm like, oh, wow, that's awesome. And, you know, and there's just many more points of connection than difference. One of the things I've been thinking about recently is what can women fans of sports do to help the progress? I mean, people who are not involved in, you know, doing podcasts or writing about it or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. just normal women who follow sports, what can they do to help, to help progress women's sports? Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, it's interesting because I, I don't think we should dismiss the importance of the podcasts and the books and the articles and the companies that women are starting, you know, I think that's all part of it. And I think, you know, regular women, so to speak, can can do all of those things. Obviously attending attending the matches and the games and amplifying the stories of athletes on social media and elsewhere is really important. Um cheering them on, talking about the stories listen, you know, listening, you, you can listen to a podcast, you can buy people's books. I'm not referring to mine here. But I mean, you know, there's a lot of books out there. And just continue, you know, keep telling the stories. Mm 
Well, I want to wrap up, but is there anything that I missed you want to cover, want to tell people before you sign off? Um, I don't think so. This has been very thorough. I appreciate your amazing reading of the book and engaging with all of these questions. And it's really fun to talk to you about them. And that is it for this week. Thank you to Kelsey Irvick for taking the time to talk about her book here. Links to things Kelsey and I talked about, how to order her book, and an image of the cover of The Keeper are all in the show notes at hearhersports.com. Thank you, as always, to our fantastic Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee supporters for the continued backing of the show. We can't thank you enough. We couldn't do it without you because we are a listener-supported show. If you aren't a supporter and would like to be, Go to patreon.com slash hearher or to the easy to use buymeacoffee.com slash hearher. Hear Her Sports is also looking forward to building our audience and you can help us tell your friends about the show, about one of the athletes you met here or about something you learned. There are other ways to keep the conversation going. Hear Her Sports is on social with the handle Hear Her Sports. You can send me an email to Elizabeth at hearhersports.com. I will always reply because I absolutely love hearing from you and talking about women's sports. And remember to sign up for the Hear Her Sports newsletter. Sign up at hearhersports.com. Until next time, bye-bye. Sorry, (laughs) pardon that pause. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato and this is Pit Pass F1, a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts.